It was one of the more unsettling moments in the presidential debate between President Trump and Joe Biden. Asked directly whether he will forestall declaring victory before all the votes are counted in next month's presidential election and the results independently certified, the president declined to do so. Instead, he issued a chilling exhortation to his supporters to, quote, go into the polls and watch very carefully. Is this standard poll watching or blatant voter intimidation, a threat to disrupt the most sacred act in American democracy? We'll discuss that and other unnerving trends about the state of our democracy here in the United States, as well as around the world with Michael Abramowitz, the president of Freedom House, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. I do think that that was uh, one of those moments during the debate when Trump started talking about having his supporters go to the polls and watch carefully and then put that together with his uh, seeming encouragement to the Proud Boys. And, you know, all sorts of images flashed in my mind. I, I don't usually like to go to uh, analogies of the 1930s, but the idea of brown shirts certainly popped into my mind. And then you read sort of the follow-up to uh, Trump's comments to learn about this army for Trump that the campaign has on its website, recruiting an army of MAGA folks to like come out to the polls and serve as poll watchers. And, um, you know, it does raise all sorts of uh, really kind of scary questions. Yeah, it, it is chilling. I mean, you know, it's all about voter suppression and uh, and intimidation. And, you know, his deploying of, you know, shock troops, you know, whether it's the National Guard, which he tried to do in front of the White House, or MAGA supporters showing up at the polls, um, you know, does have this like aura of authoritarianism. You think about Latin American elections or, you know, other yeah. you know, elections in, in uh you know, in repressive uh, countries ar around the world. Now, it's easy to, to be kind of hyperbolic about these things, um, but this bears, I think, a lot of scrutiny and speaking out about it because in this climate, people are already scared to vote because of the pandemic and because of, you know, uh, protests in the streets and the sense that there is that, that we are living in dangerous times here. You know, it's just it's it's scary stuff. 
Yeah, it is. And uh, that's why it's going to be great to have our old colleague, Michael Abramowitz, uh, on the show. He's now the president of Freedom House. They've got this report about uh, the state of democracy around the world. And it's it's a case of shrinking democracy around the world, including in the United States. So we'll be discussing that with Michael. But before we do, I just want to give an update to a show we did last week, and that was uh, the Dual uh, Skullduggery and Conspiracyland episode with Tom Malinowski, who's been targeted in these NRCC ads. NRCC is the National Republican Campaign Committee, the uh, campaign arm of House Republicans, accusing him of, uh, of protecting pedophiles. It's an outlandish charge based on pretty uh, ridiculous evidence that 16 years ago a colleague of his had written a letter objecting to some provisions in the crime bill. And um, the takeaway we had, the reason we thought this was such a uh, significant uh, episode to do, an interview to do with Malinowski is because it seemed a clear dog whistle to the QAnon crowd. You know, the conspiracy theorists who believe that there's a, you know, cabal of, of sex, child sex traffickers and pedophiles who are basically trying to sabotage Donald Trump's presidency. So just an update on that. After we did that episode, the NRCC doubled down. They continued to tweet about Malinowski, the supposed protector of uh, child sex traffickers and, and pedophiles. And then QAnon weighed in and basically endorsed what the NRCC was saying. They retweeted, although it wasn't on Twitter, it was on their one of their fringe sites. They've been mostly banned from Twitter. What the NRCC was saying about Melanowski, and after that, Melanowski starts getting death threats. And I just heard from his staff today uh, informing me that uh, the Capitol Police now is investigating these death threats to Tom Malinowski, the congressman, the Democratic congressman from New Jersey. And that's all because of, you know, here you have once again the official campaign arm of House Republicans playing to the QAnon crowd, the QAnon crowd picking up on it, and it leading to death threats on a U.S. congressman. You know, I, I got to say about Malinowski, um, you know, who you and I have known for a long time, it, it does take some courage to get out there and speak out against QAnon and, and, and conspiracy theorists. You know, we have this debate in journalism, how aggressively to cover these stories, because there's always the fear of amplifying them. And I think, I think I've come to the conclusion that you have to do it. You absolutely have to knock down these conspiracy theories. You have to fight back with with facts, fight back with the truth. But there are risks associated with that, um, including apparently uh, death threats. Um, right. and, and so, these are perilous times. But uh, you know, we are committed on Skullduggery and Conspiracy Land uh, to keep uh, talking about this, to keep reporting on it. We want to hear what all of you have to say about this. Uh, so tweet at us at Skullduggery Pod. And, you know, we're going to stay on this story up through the election and beyond. Absolutely. But uh, let's get uh, to Michael Abramowitz of Freedom House. Mm-hmm. 
We now have with us the president of Freedom House, Michael Abramowitz, our uh, old colleague from the Washington Post who has moved up in life. Michael, welcome to Skullduggery. It's great to be with two of my oldest friends from the world of journalism. In fact, I think I even know Danny before I knew Isakoff because Dan and I were, cop were copyists, I think, right? Or something. You know, we actually met even before that. You may not remember this, but... Freshman year of college, my first year of college, I was at BU before I went to Georgetown, and we ended up covering the same story, like, I don't know, the first few weeks of school. And I was like, oh, God, I, you know, I think I knew you somehow, maybe through our parents, right? Yeah. And I was like, I'm competing against Mike Abramowitz, my first story uh, at, at the Boston University paper. Oh, well. But uh, anyway, here we are. All right, here we are, and we have important things to talk about, including Freedom House's new report about uh, democracy under lockdown, the impact of COVID-19 on the global struggle for freedom. But before we do that, Michael, I wanted to ask you about the pretty extraordinary statement you put out last week. Freedom House condemns President Trump's statements on election legitimacy Quote, President Trump's continuous and consistent efforts to cast doubt on the legitimacy of U.S. elections should be a matter of urgent concern for everyone in the United States, regardless of party affiliation, said Michael Abramowitz, president of Freedom House. That seemed to me to be something you don't do very often, uh, make a statement about a political election in the United States and in opining on one of the candidates, the president. And beyond that, the concerns you expressed then, last week, I would think have only been heightened by some of the comments during the debate. Tell us how you came to make this statement and why. Well, thank you for the question, Michael. I mean, I think one thing that I'd like to emphasize for your listeners is that Freedom House has always looked at the health of U.S. democracy. The thing we're probably best known for is our Freedom of the World Report, which is a annual survey of the state of political rights and civil liberties in the world. And one of the things I'm very proud of about Freedom House is that we not only point the finger at what is happening in places like Russia or Turkey or Vietnam or Venezuela, but we also, you know, take a hard look at, at, at the health of U.S. democracy. And I, I would say in, in recent years, we've been quite concerned about the trajectory of U.S. democracy. We were, we pointed out other things that have happened under previous administrations, like when President Obama kind of went after whistleblowers and journalists for leaks. But I think it's fair to say that we've gotten more concerned about the trajectory of things in recent years. And I would just say that you know, one of the cornerstones of democracy is the conduct of elections, making sure they're fair and free, and that people respect the results. And I think it just was very extraordinary to us, the staff, I think the trustees too, of Freedom House, that, you know, the president of the United States would seek to sow confusion and raise doubts about the legitimacy of our elections, as opposed to trying to really make sure that we have a fair balloting in November. So I think we were, we thought that extraordinary times, I mean, you know, you, I've been a political reporter like you, I, I can't remember ever in my lifetime, a president, you know, really going out of his way to so confusion or so undermine confidence in the, in the integrity of elections. And I thought we thought that it was worth calling out. 
and, and then Trump only doubled down during the debate. Right. Look, this is a this has become kind of a uh, a talking point for him, right? That he is basically, I mean, really every day uh, he's he's doing this, and it's it's part of a deliberate strategy to undermine public confidence in the elections. And and thankfully, by the way, you see people in both parties. I mean, we're a very polarized society now, but I do think you've seen Republicans, you know, push back on this particular point that he shouldn't be doing this. Mike, one of the kind of perennial questions about Trump is whether he is a symptom of a disease or whether he is in some ways the disease itself. So in, in this context, you know, I think even before Trump, we had seen an erosion in trust in our institutions uh, and our democratic processes. And then maybe with Trump, that has been kind of supercharged. But as you think about the United States right now, I guess I wonder, you know, we're about to have an election and we may have a change in leadership. How much of a difference do you think ultimately that makes? Or are you really concerned about kind of core problems in, in the American system right now that have to do with all of these questions about trust, about disinformation, about the social media platforms and the impact that they have, for example? Well, well, Danny, I think it's I think it's both. There is no question that there has been a weakening of the health of American institutions of that's been going on for quite some time. I mean, I could just give you one data point that if you look at the our Freedom House scores, that maybe about ten years ago, uh, the United States ranked very high. Uh, had a score, I believe, about ninety-four out of a hundred. You know, we rate countries on a scale of zero to 100. And that kind of put the United States in the category of you know countries like France or England or other countries to which we're often compared. So over the last 10 years or so, that's slipped. So now we're, I think our latest score was 86. And some of that happened under uh, previous administrations, but I think things have gotten worse. So I do think, as you say, Danny, in some ways, President Trump is a symptom but I think you also have to just acknowledge that in his attacks on the media, in his uh, attacks on elections, in some of the practices that were outlined in the impeachment report, you know, the kind of corruption that has been tolerated, I think, you know, he's contributing to a, uh, a downgrading uh, in U.S. democracy. So it's both. And, and, but, I, but, I don't, but I think it would be wrong to say this is just President Trump. I think there's some serious problems that don't go away even if Vice President Biden is elected. In the debate the other night, and I think we have a clip from this, the president was asked, you know, as if he'd been, by Chris Wallace, as if he'd been reading what Freedom House has had to say, if the president would forego declaring victory in the election before all the votes are counted and there's a actual certification of it. And I found his response pretty eyebrow raising. Um, we've got a clip from that. Mark, you want to play that for us? Will you urge your supporters to stay calm during this extended period, not to engage in any civil unrest? And will you pledge tonight that you will not declare victory until the election has been independently certified? President Trump, you I'm go first. I'm urging my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that's what has to happen. I am urging them to do it. 
As you know, today there was a big problem. In Philadelphia, they went in to watch. They were called poll watchers, a very safe, very nice thing. They were thrown out. They weren't allowed to watch. You know why? Because bad things happen in Philadelphia, bad things. And I am urging I am urging my people. I hope it's going to be a fair election. If it's a fair You're election, I am 100 percent on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. So just by way of background that you might find interesting, you know, I was actually an election observer myself two years ago when I went, I went to Zimbabwe as part of a mission that was organized by the International Republican Institute and the National Democratic Institute to, to observe the elections in Zimbabwe. And you know, to be a, a real election observer, there's, there's, there's some training involved. You know, you have to, there's a methodology, you know, you have to stay out of the way of folks. You know, there's a, there's a real way of doing this. And this is like the opposite of that, right? It's basically uh, as a, the, the aura of, you know, sending people to kind of intimidate others from voting. And so that was very concerning about what the president calls for. You, you don't want, you know, uh, you know, white nationalist groups or, or others, you know, showing up. At the or Proud Boys. Or the Proud Boys <laughs> showing up, you know, to intimidate people. And I mean, you want people to vote and you want people not to feel intimidated when they go to vote. And that's a cardinal element of democracy. And, you know, I would, I would, I, I do not believe the United States is an authoritarian country. So believe me, but these are the kinds of practices that we see in other countries that we criticize. And so we, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that the, that the president is, is calling on people to do that here. In a second, I think we want to kind of get the global perspective, talk about your report and particularly um, how, the COVID-19 pandemic may be giving authoritarians around, around the world an opportunity to, to crack down on freedom. But I just want to ask you, you said we are, we are not an authoritarian uh, country, and I think we can all agree that that is, that is the case right now. But there is a lot of talk in this country. I mean, we saw it after Trump's, the Trump-Biden debate the other night. Uh, people were talking maybe a little bit hyperbolically, but talking about this being a, uh, an expression of the weakness of our, of our democracy. And people throw around the word dictatorship a lot in uh, connection with Trump. And I know we're not there. But put this in some context. I mean, how worried should Americans be about this move toward some form of authoritarianism or at least erosion in, in democracy of, as we uh, have all come to expect it to be in this country? Well, I, I think people should be concerned about the trajectory of things. I mean, let me give you a couple of data points to consider. First of all, at Freedom House, you know, we divide countries into three categories, free, partly free, and not free. And there's no question that, that the United States continues to be a free country. And I think, you know, will for the foreseeable future be a free country. But when I think of what's happening in the United States, I don't necessarily think about what's happening in places like Russia or China. I think our institutions and constitutions are too strong for that. But I do think about, you know, a country like Hungary, where what you have in Hungary is a government that was freely elected, but that, but that proceeds over the years to basically make moves to restrict freedom, to entrench themselves in power for years to come. So you can do that by uh, you know, having your, your friends buy over friendly media and turning you know, state TV into a propaganda arm of the government. Uh, you allow your friends to have access to the, to the coffers of the state. You stack the courts 
with favored jurists. You gerrymander the system so that even if you have a minority of voters, you can still win a majority in, in parliament. So gradually over time, you know, freedom is being wheeled away. And I think that's a more likely situation in the United States where we could enjoy less freedom in the future than we do now. That's what I'm concerned. It's not a binary thing, but, but we could enjoy less freedom than we do now. And that's what I think people should be concerned about. Well, let's talk about your uh, report, uh, Democracy Under Lockdown, the Impact of COVID-19 on the Global Struggle for Freedom, because I gather that is the consistent theme that our freedoms all over the world are being diminished by the COVID pandemic. You say it's fueled a crisis for democracy around the world and that the condition of democracy and human rights has grown worse in 85 countries since the pandemic began. Tell us what, how you reached this conclusion and what your yardsticks are for the diminution in freedom and human rights around the world. Right. Okay. So in terms of Freedom House, you know, one thing we do is we measure the health of democracy around the world. We've been doing that for close to 50 years. And every, every year, usually in the first quarter of the year, we put out a big report called Freedom in the World. And what that report has essentially shown over the last 15 years or so is that more countries are having declines in political rights and civil liberties than those that are improving. And so we're really in the midst of what I would say has already been a global democracy, maybe not depression, but certainly a democracy recession, where you have more authoritarian countries, authoritarian countries getting stronger, and, and traditionally democratic countries like the United States, some of the countries in Western Europe getting weaker. That's a general trend. Our last report was done just before the, just as the COVID crisis was hitting. And I think our next report is actually not going to be done for another six months or so about what's happening this year. But we thought the impact of COVID was so great that we want to take a really close look at what the impact of COVID has been. And so what we did is we essentially did a survey of many of the experts that we already consult with on our other reports. So these are academics who follow human rights, civil society activists, human rights defenders, we surveyed about 400 and we consulted with others and we kind of looked at the situation all over the world. And we basically concluded that human rights and democracy are getting weaker over the last uh, six months or so. We cited really five things that we were concerned about. And I would say, first thing that I would say as a former journalist, Mike and Dan, is that there's really a, an assault on the media that in nearly half of the countries that we looked at, uh, have imposed new restrictions on the news media uh, as part of the response to the outbreak. Now, one can understand efforts to, you know, control movement, perhaps because of, you know, to control the spread of the disease, but there's really no rational reason for, you know, limiting what the press can say. You know, similarly, you saw national elections were, were being uh, postponed in eight or nine countries, and that, uh, you know, a number of the countries you know, we're moving their national votes and not really immediately planning for new elections. And in some of the countries, you know, the authorities led change the election rules, which, you know, further damaged the credibility of elections. You also basically saw a situation which we're seeing here in the United States as well, which is that, you know, clear and transparent information about COVID-19 is failing to reach the public. We found that there was a high level of distrust about governments and what they were saying about COVID-19. 
And we also saw that there was a lot of effort to kind of marginalize minority communities, vulnerable populations, you know, scapegoat ethnic and religious minorities because of, to blame them for, for what was happening in COVID. So we saw across a wide degree of areas, governments basically taking steps to impose, you know, restrictions on human rights and freedoms as a result of the pandemic. We will see for sure in our next Freedom of the World report, you know, but we wanted to give kind of a mid-year snapshot of what's happening because we're so concerned about it. Can you give us, go I was just going to say, give us some examples that you find especially disturbing. Let me think for a minute. Well, I'll give you like, a, you know, a couple of concrete examples. You know, in Hong Kong, and this is sort of a, in some ways, a small thing compared to the overall problems of the Chinese government happening in Hong Kong, but there were, there were supposed to be legislative elections that were set for September. And given the political situation in Hong Kong, there was no question that the kind of opposition parties, the people who are opposed to Beijing, were going to win overwhelmingly because that position is really popular in Hong Kong. And what we saw is that essentially the, the authorities, with the support of the Chinese government, postponed the elections by a year because they saw they were going to lose them. And so that's just a concrete example of, you know, the manipulation of an election. You know, I'll give you another example. It's you know, not a country that a lot of people, you know, particularly pay attention to in the United States, but Sri Lanka. You know, there's been kind of an authoritarian trend among the, uh, the Rajapaksas, the, the, the brothers that kind of run the country. And uh, they've been enacting new laws to uh, you know, control independent reporting and, and suppress unfavorable speech. There were supposed to be elections. They were postponed because of COVID. So that allowed the president to rule without checks from the parliament. And at the same time, the government was blaming Muslim minority as falsely as super spreaders of the disease. So, you know, allowed more discrimination and scapegoating of those minorities. So that's just a kind of a, a couple of examples of the kinds of things that are going on in those two countries, but we're seeing it, you know, in many other countries around the world. One statistic that I thought was interesting, roughly two thirds of the human rights experts that we surveyed, and these were people who are, you know, looking at their own situation in a hundred different countries, thought that the situation involving human rights was going to deteriorate even further over the next three to five years. So I think the way we put it, we did this in a partnership with the GQR research uh, survey research firm that we, you know, we see this, that the pandemic has brought a, a health crisis. It's brought a economic crisis now. All that's been recognized, but it's also bringing a human rights and democracy crisis. So, Mike, it sounds like what you're mostly talking about here are authoritarian regimes who are using the COVID crisis as a pretext for to crack down on freedoms. But do you also see authoritarian regimes who are trying to respond to this crisis who just fall back on their kind of natural authoritarian tendencies? So I think about a country like China which when China does contact tracing or when they do isolation and they deal with the spread of, of, the, uh, of the virus in, in uh, Wuhan, they do it in a much more heavy-handed way uh, than we do uh, in this country. And other countries do as well, including in Western democracies. So how do you sort of parse those two things? Well, I think that our, our survey suggested essentially that the worst problems are happening in the countries that are not free. 
So like China, that's a good example, Dan. Uh, and then also sort of the partly free countries, you know, countries that are kind of, you know, have some freedoms, but, you know, also have, you know, a mixture of freedoms and unfreedoms, if you will. And I think you're correct that like, you know, the Chinese, you know, what's happening in China is really a, a reflection of general trends with respect to, you know, political rights and civil, I mean, there are no political rights and civil liberties in China. In fact, from a very low bar, it's gotten worse uh, over the last five or six years under President Xi. And uh, I, think what's, I think what's distinctive about the Chinese response to the Wuhan virus, I guess, or that mm. <laughs> President Trump calls it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but you, know, you know, they're trying to shield and block you know, accurate information about it. I mean, they probably will be doing that anyway, but I think the pandemic is, is causing them, you know, giving them new leeway to do it even more. Mm-hmm. As we seem to be doing in the United States as well. Yes. And by the way, Mike, you know, we do in the report talk about, you know, some of the problems with respect to these issues in the, in the United States. You know, I mentioned, for instance, the situation with elections, you know, the fact that in, in Wisconsin, you had thousands of voters who did not receive their requested absentee ballots in time and people had to wait in line for hours. And, and Georgia voters experienced a, a shortage of poll workers and problems with voting machines. I mean, these are problems that you expect of, you know, in other countries, not necessarily our country. And by the way, interesting about Georgia and talking about organizations that kind of have their, you know, I was in a dialogue recently with the Carter Center in Georgia and, uh, you know, Carter and the people at the Carter Center are very well known for their work overseas monitoring elections, but uh, they've actually put some of their budget for this year into you know, trying to assure the integrity of, of some of the elections uh, in Georgia, because they felt like hey, you can't just look overseas, you got to look at what's happening here. So I think Freedom House is not alone in being concerned about the trajectory of U.S. democracy. Hey, Mike, there are also not many, but some bright spots in your report that I wanted to ask you about. Sure. And I guess, I guess uh, you know, crises can bring out the worst in autocratic regimes, but they can also bring out the best in people like you know, human rights leaders and dissidents and the like. And the one that fascinates me is Tunisia, which you highlighted. And I think a lot of our listeners will remember that the Arab Spring began in Tunisia and did not fare that well in in most other countries in that part of the world. But Tunisia is a bright spot in a lot of ways. So talk about what they have done during this uh, pandemic and then more generally how Tunisia has, has evolved in terms of democratic reforms and human rights. Right. Well, let me let me make a, a general point before I talk about Tunisia. But I, I really appreciate that because I do think that it's very easy to get kind of caught in gloom and doom about this. But there have actually been a number of democratic success stories in general over the past number of years. You know, I think of uh, Tunisia being one of them. It's the only country in the Arab world that is considered free by Freedom House. It is the one country where the the improvements that were ushered in, the reforms that were ushered in by the Arab Spring have kind of stuck. It's still got problems, you know, with respect to the coronavirus. We talked to at least 10 experts as part of this survey that, you know, followed Tunisia closely. And uh, they told us that, you know, while things are not totally perfect, that, you know, there have been some reports of police abuse and kind of arbitrary enforcement of the lockdown that essentially they said that officials have largely refrained from, from serious infringements on, on fundamental, 
fundamental freedom. So I think that Tunisia is is a is a good is is in some ways a, a a good story here. And I think, but more generally, I think you're seeing that despite these problems, there's still a kind of universal thirst for maybe not democracy in U.S. style, but but certainly a, a thirst for for freedom. And I just think there are a lot of data points for that. I think of a country like Sudan, which is, you know, nearby Tunisia, you know, Sudan was really one of the worst dictatorships in the world for 30 years. They were even guilty of genocide in Darfur. And uh, that's been an issue that I've been tracking for quite some time. And the leader, the dictator who led Sudan for many years, Omar al-Bashir, was indicted by the International Criminal Court on charges of genocide. I never thought anything would ever happen to him, but there was a, a, a peaceful protest there, really led not by outsiders, but by professional groups. We recently honored some of these groups at, at our Freedom House Awards Dinner, uh, you know, a group of doctors and lawyers, people who really just fed up with kind of the corruption and poor governance in Sudan and led a peaceful overthrow. And so you do see these pockets of, of protests, these pockets of, of hope, and I think it's just a very helpful reminder. I mean, I think the biggest sort of story in democracy right now in the world is probably in Belarus. And I think it, you know, Belarus really does show the connection between governance and democracy because, you know, this guy, Lukashenko, has been in power for, you know, more than 25 years, you know, often described as Europe's last dictator. And he's just a very poor manager, governance. He hasn't delivered for the people. And when the when COVID struck, they denied it and didn't deal with it. And finally, the people are fed up. And he tried to have a sham election, you know, get, get himself back in power. But the people of Belarus are not putting up with it. And, uh, you know, every Sunday, hundreds of thousands of people hit the streets in protest. And they're trying to arrest the they're trying to arrest people there and, and, and get under control. They got a lot of support from Moscow, from Putin in, in trying to do that. But, but, but the thirst for freedom is still strong. So I think you're quite right to remind us of being hopeful, not just being gloomy. So, Mike, you know, one uh, line of argument about your report would be that you don't really address what some in this country and elsewhere feel is the real threat to civil liberties and freedom from COVID, and that is the lockdowns and restrictions imposed by government to fight the pandemic. And of course, we've had that play out in, you know, state after state in the United States and time after time, people who feel that restrictions on indoor gatherings denies them the right to attend religious services. That's a restriction on their religious freedoms. Uh, the lockdowns prevent uh, gatherings to for political reasons, uh, protests, or at least restrict the ability to do that. And this is, um, you know, this is uh, something that not just extremists on the right have expressed. There's the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben, who's uh, been quite vocal about what he calls the techno-medical despotism of quarantines and closings. And he compares that to the restrictions on freedom we saw after 9-11, in which national security experts were given the authority to impose all sorts of restrictions and increase surveillance on citizens around the world. And, you know, he makes the argument, why should we trust the techno-medical experts any more than we should trust the national security experts who have restricted our freedoms in the past? Well, it's a great question, Mike. And it's one that, 
you know, we think about a lot at Freedom House. I think, I think the first thing I would just say in general is that there's a balancing that's always going on with these issues, right? You know, it's like these freedoms often collide with each other. And, you know, I, I think often, you know, as a former journalist of, of, you know, what's happening, you know, on the internet that I feel just because of who I am, the organization I have that, you know, absolute right to say anything without political infringement is, is really important to me. And, you know, there's, there's some cases where, you know, restrictions on speech may be justified, you know, to prevent like a genocide, you know, to prevent incitement against people, but that really I'm, I'm you know, I'm in favor of the sort of unfettered free speech. But on the other hand, you know, unfettered free speech on the internet has led to people being able to kind of manipulate elections, uh, which is another cornerstone of democracy. So uh, I'm, I'm not trying to say what what is right, but it's but it's a balancing act. And you know, we do restrict, we do restrict, we do accept certain restrictions on freedom in the name of public health. I mean, I mean, the best example I can think of is seatbelts, right? To some extent, wearing a seatbelt is a restriction on 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 freedom. But I think that's become commonly accepted as, a, as an acceptable risk for the public health payoff of, of, of wearing seatbelts. So it's hard to kind of address lockdowns in general. But I think, I, I think the point that we make in Freedom House is that if you're going to enact restrictions, they need to be proportionate. They need to be grounded in science and they need to be grounded in data. And you know, and, and, they, and they ought to be, you know, time bound so that, you know, they, they're not there indefinitely. And I think, you know, that's the spirit in which I think we have to approach this. You know, the point of view, if you do it that way, then you can self-correct. I mean, if, if, if the government said, you know, lockdowns are going are gonna to persist for two years, that's one thing. But if they're saying, well, we're going to have lockdowns for three or four weeks to try to control what could be a serious public health challenge, and that, that, that's another thing altogether. So it's really a balancing act that I think you have to look at and making sure that any government restrictions are bound in sort of time and so forth, as I, as I just enunciated. Pick up on something you said, Mike, about the internet being a, a huge challenge here. And, you know, we know that conspiracy theories, disinformation, which are proliferating all over uh, the internet and social media platforms, corrode our democracy because increasingly people can't you know, sort out fact from fiction. You know, democracy depends on on people being able to relate, uh, rely on a on a shared set of facts, on a kind of collective reality. And Facebook, Twitter, uh, these uh, social media platforms are huge and enormously powerful. Now, I don't know. You know, I know Freedom House has been very focused on on governments, but to what extent is are the social media platforms? A problem that if you are serious about democratic reform, that even a, an organization like Freedom House is going to have to uh, deal with. Have you looked at the at, at their role in all of this? Have you been critical of their role? What's your view on all of that? Well, I, first of all, I think this is one of the biggest challenges really facing democracy, you know, which is the role of social media companies and, and how to get that balance that I talked about right. So I totally agree with you, Dan. And, and you're also right that we've traditionally really focused on governmental restrictions on liberty and freedom. But I think, you, I think, as you say, we have to recognize that today private companies wield enormous power uh, and influence over these issues and the decisions they make, you know, candidly have more impact on speech uh, or elections in some countries than, 
you know, than the actions of governments, right? So uh, I, I, it's, a, it's a balancing act. I think we do a report every year. We have actually, to give you a little preview of that, we're gonna have a report coming out in two weeks called Freedom of the Net. And uh, that looks at the state of internet freedom all over the world. I would look at that and we do grapple uh, in those report with the role of companies. I, I can't give you like a single answer about companies good, companies bad. I think, you know, I think, I think that, I think there's been both good and bad. I think, you know, from, from where we sit, companies like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube have enabled some real improvements. You know, in, in Russia, YouTube videos have been among the major sources of information to expose the corruption among the leadership. On the other hand, there's no question that these companies have not been strong enough in preventing some of the disinformation from reaching people. And, and, and that's something that they're trying to fix, whether they're going, whether they're trying to fix it fast enough or hard enough. That's, that's, a, that's a reasonable question. Let me uh, switch gears a bit. We were talking before about uh, Tunisia as being a bright spot, but when you look at the Middle East in particular, it seems that the levels of repression uh, and authoritarianism have only gotten a lot worse. And of course, I bring that up right now because we are on the cusp of uh, the second anniversary of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist who wrote for the Washington Post, the paper you and I and Danny all uh, worked for in the past. And um, our intelligence agency has concluded that that was a murder that was likely sanctioned, if not uh, directed and ordered by the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. When you are faced with a U.S. ally like Saudi Arabia that has behaved in such a barbaric way and, you know, murdering a prominent journalist. What is the proper response? And what action should the United States and the world community be taking towards a country that behaves that way? Well, first of all, I completely agree with you, Michael, that this is one of the most egregious cases of, you know, state-sponsored repression that we've seen in, in recent years. By the way, Saudi Arabia scores seven out of 100 in terms of, I mean, there, there's no civil liberties or political rights within Saudi Arabia. And Jamal Khashoggi was essentially punished because he was trying to blow the whistle on what was happening in the West. And he, and by the way, it's very moving actually. His final newspaper column for the Washington Post, which he, which was published posthumously, did use Freedom House scores to talk about this, this democracy deficit in the Arab world. But there's been a complete impunity. You know, there's, you know, sham, you know, there's no real internationally legitimate accountability for what's happened. The Crown Prince has, um, paid very little price for that. I mean, the one thing that I might just add to this that it might be worth discussing for a minute, Mike, is that I think it's important to understand that the Khashoggi murder was part of a larger Saudi campaign, really, which is really a serious, multifaceted effort to silence exiles and dissidents, not just in Saudi Arabia, but beyond its borders. And uh, since MBS came into power, there's just been a full-scale campaign along these lines. So, so we saw an assassination with Khashoggi. We've seen renditions. I think at least four people have been 
critics of the regime, including members of the royal family, have been and human rights defenders have been rendered back to Saudi Arabia. You know, we know that Saudi Arabia is investing very heavily in spyware and targeting their enemies overseas. And I would take it even broader, Mike, which is that this is a really serious problem for democracies in general, because what you see are countries like Saudi Arabia, Russia, China, Turkey, who are increasingly targeting their dissidents, not just who are living inside their countries, but who are living in democracies. And democracies need to step up to this. This is something that Freedom House is really studying very closely. And we expect to have a major report on this subject early in 2021. Okay, but step up how? Because, you know, my question was, what is the appropriate response when a country behaves that way? Well, I think you have different things, but I, I certainly think serious financial sanctions against the people involved in this, including MBS. I mean, these people depend on being able to have access to the Western banking system. So I certainly think that that's number one. I think number two, I wouldn't go so far as saying breaking diplomatic relations, but I think, you know, the United States could have made much more clear its outrage over what had happened. I mean, this is really was a, a tremendous breach in you know, really all norms of civilized behavior. I mean, those are just some of the things yeah. that come top to you know, Listen, I, I bring it up because a, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Jake Sullivan on. Jake Sullivan uh, is a yeah, uh, former State Jake. Department official who's uh, an advisor to the Biden campaign. And when I asked him about the Khashoggi murder, he said, hey, President Biden would certainly want to hold everybody uh, who was responsible for that accountable. And then when I followed up with, so would a president in Biden impose sanctions on MBS himself? Sullivan was kind of ducked that and said, you know, I, I don't know that we have a, he didn't say it in these words, but basically that they don't have a position on that. They're not prepared to address that directly. And it seems that if you're, if you take the standard line, you want to hold those accountable, those responsible for the murder accountable, then you have to address the very difficult question of what do you do if the person accountable is essentially the ruler of the country and the country is a U.S. ally? Yeah. Well, look, Mike, I, I, I don't have a magic bullet to that situation. And clearly the United States has is juggling other interests there. But, you know, it's a, it's a matter of the balance there. But I, I would say that there are other things that can be done just in general on this issue. You know, you can, you know, you can strengthen export controls to make sure that, you know, Western technology, you know, that could be useful to the Saudis or other authoritarian countries don't get to that. You know, you can, you know, prevent arms transfers uh, to the Saudis. There's a there's a, there's, a, there's a bill in Congress to that effect. Um, I mean, there are specific things. You know, you can uh, work more effectively with Interpol. You know, Interpol has been an institution that's been abused by the bad guys. And, you know, as you know, I think, I don't know if you had Bill Browder on your phone, but, you know, he's, have. You know, he's, <laughs> you know, he's probably told you about, you know, the red notices yeah. that have been issued for his arrest by Russia time and time again. So I, I think that I think it's very hard to deal with a with a U.S. allied situation, and uh, I if, Jay, if Jake Sullivan doesn't give you a good answer, Doctor <laughs> asked me to give you an answer. But I, but I certainly think the balance. I think the balance. You know, I, I think the problem with the Khashoggi case is that the United States acted like it really didn't care about it, and you know, there's a way to kind of exp 
you know, to make it clear that this is really a problem. It was more like wink, wink. So that's, that's what just one quick follow up on that. You know, the one irony that always leaps out at me is uh, that the country that basically called out the Saudi role and caught them red handed yeah, was one was of the Turkey. worst violators of, of human rights in the world. <laughs> yes. President Erdogan. <laughs> yes. Uh, what can you tell us about his record, particularly with journalists in his country? You know, I got to double check this number, but I think one of our sister organizations has concluded that there are more journalists in jail in Turkey than in any country in the world. I mean, there's been a huge, really dragnet of uh, effort to, you know, really imprison journalists, civil society, human rights activists, really academics, really anyone who would be critical of the, of the government. So it is a little bit of case of the pot calling the kettle black there. But, you know, for his own kind of rail politic reasons, it was in Erdogan's interest to call out the Saudi behavior. Mike, you, you referred to uh, the uh, Trump uh, administration winking and nodding toward MBS and, and the Saudis. So to sort of come back to, uh, in a way, where we started uh, with Trump, but connecting him to the rest of the world, Far from winking and nodding with a lot of dictators uh, around the world, he's outright encouraging them. So whether it's uh, Erdogan himself in, in Turkey or you mentioned uh, Viktor Orban in, in, in Hungary, you know, Trump is actively encouraging and heaping praise on dictators. And I wonder, you know, in the context of, of a free press and freedom of expression, you know, everyone, uh, every dictator around the world now uses the, uses the phrase fake news. But I'm sure there are other impacts as well. But I wonder um, his rhetoric, his support, tacit or otherwise, for these dictators, does that have kind of measurable, consequential impact that you're aware of? You know, do, do his words have that kind of power? Absolutely. And you just said one of the ways that it does have power, which is the fake news. We found in one of our reports a couple of years ago that something along the order of two dozen countries had had passed basically censorship laws or laws restricting journalists in the name of combating fake news. So there's a reason why they felt licensed for that and they're hearing that kind of rhetoric from the president of the United States. So it's it's, it's very, very damaging. Uh, I mean, let me just say, by the way, I, let's, let's not be kind of naive about this. Uh, you know, these dictators are going to do what they want to do regardless, right? I mean, I don't think, you know, Putin, Xi Jinping, you know, Erdogan, these strong men, and by the way, it is strong men, you know, are, are motivated by their own kind of, you know, they have their own motivations to do this. Uh, but I think, I think one of the points that we often make at Freedom House, it's very, very important for the United States to stand up for its ideals and for democracy. And that when the United States does not behave in a way that kind of lives up to our aspirations, that it's a real problem for the world. I mean, no one is naive about the United States. We've had very serious problems in our country. You know, slavery, Jim Crow, the legacy of that continues. We are far from a perfect democracy, but we do have these ideals that we try to live up to. We have this, this, this constitution that allows for self-improvement and self-correction. So we are a country that, while it's not perfect, you know, is trying, you know, in the long view to make it better. And that's, and, and so when the United States does not act like a, a country that really believes in democracy, it's very damaging to the, to the cause of global democracy. Well, an important point we should all be thinking about as we watch the, uh, this election season unfold. 
Uh, Michael, before we let you go, we should ask you about an unusual distinction you have of actually being sanctioned by one of these authoritarian governments. Um, uh, tell us what happened. Well, what happened is that Freedom House has been very active and outspoken about the egregious human rights abuses by the Chinese government, particularly with respect to the Uyghurs who are being persecuted and put in concentration camps in Western China, and also the diminution of liberty in Hong Kong. And so over the summer, the United States government imposed individual sanctions on the Hong Kong officials like Carrie Lam, I believe, and also a number of the Chinese officials who were responsible for the infringement of human rights in Hong Kong. And so the Chinese, they, the US put sanctions on 11 Chinese individuals. And so I woke up one morning and I discovered that I was on a sanctions list from the, from the uh, Chinese uh, foreign ministry, along with Tom Cotton, uh, Ken Roth from Human <laughs> Rights Watch, uh, Carl Gershman from the National Endowment for Democracy. How do you find that out? I mean, is it you read it in the paper or do you get official notification from? No, no. I got e I got texts and emails from friends. I, I, I can wake <laughs> up. I can't sleep anymore. So I woke up at six and I'm checking my texts and people say, hey, you got to check the Bloomberg story. You've been <laughs> sanctioned by the Chinese. <laughs> you personally have been sanctioned. You personally have been sanctioned. By the way, Freedom House itself as an organization has been sanctioned as well, but but both right. Freedom House as an organization and me personally. So what is the sanction? I mean, what, what does it mean? They've been very, honestly, they've been very very unclear about what it actually means. The, um, and I think it's more like a political statement by the Chinese government. I'm sure that I will not be able to travel anymore, not that I was planning to go anytime soon to Hong Kong or China. You know, we don't have bank accounts in, in, in China that they can freeze. Yeah. So I, I think it's more of a political statement. But, you know, I think the one thing that I worry about as a head of a, an American NGO, you know, I, I worry about cyber attacks on our on our IT systems. And I think, you know, we've seen that, you know, according to Microsoft, that there've been attacks on, you know, other groups. So have you been, have you been hardening your systems? Definitely. Michael, I would recommend you don't go to Macau to gamble uh, <laughs> anytime in the foreseeable future. And you know how they've got um, how um, uh, Congress passed the Magnitsky Act to go after uh, as retaliation to go after Putin and the Russians. I think we need a Michael Abramowitz Act to go after the Chinese who impose this uh, these sanctions on you. Um, oh, my, my mother would love it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Michael, uh, thanks for joining us. The report is Democracy Under Lockdown, the Impact of COVID-19 on the Global Struggle for Freedom. We will be having you back. Thanks a lot, Michael. That was a lot of fun. Take care.